Hello, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, a show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So Rena, what did you get obsessed with this week? So ahead of its release next Tuesday, The Guardian has obtained an advanced copy of Sarah Sanders' memoir, Speaking for Myself. And in this book, she describes an incident in which Kim Jong-un winks at her, and later when she's in the car, she relays the incident to Trump, and he gleefully responds with, Kim Jong-un hit on you. He did. He fucking hit on you. And then goes on to describe how Trump told her to take one for the team. And I didn't expect anything better from Trump because we all know exactly who Trump is. But I was kind of just struck about the objectification of Sarah Sanders, who is the ex-press secretary. She is obviously very Christian. She's married. Not that that in any way makes this worse or better, but Trump knows all of her sort of her morals, who she is as a person. And so there's this aspect of him just completely disregarding her not just as a person or a woman, but viewing her as a piece of meat, basically to offer up or to sacrifice, to sort of appease Kim Jong-un. And it just sort of got me thinking this week about all of the things women have to deal with, all of the harassment, and just what does it mean as a woman to exist in public, in private, just basically exist in any sort of space in the, you know, the year 2020 as a woman. I had so many questions when I read this article because Sarah Sanders, who I cannot stand, is very pro-Trump. So one of my questions was, how did she perceive it? And what was her response to the winking and to these comments? Because maybe she took it as some sort of, I don't know. I think she was obviously relaying it in a sort of maybe a positive way. I'm not sure. The second question I had, I've been incredibly distracted recently, so I just got so distracted by everything in this article. What does winking mean in North Korean culture? Because North Korea is one of the most secretive nations in the world, and winking means different things in different cultures. So the reason why winking is kind of a flirtatious thing is that when human beings find something arousing or exciting, their pupils dilate and then their blinking increases. So winking kind of plays off this excessive blinking reflex and it communicates that the sight of someone is exciting to you. But like in Nigeria, parents will often wink at the child to dismiss them from the room when visitors are present. On the other hand, like in Latin America, winking is fully 100% romantic or sexual kind of interest flirtation signifier. So that was one of my questions. The other thing I was thinking about was, wait, King Jong-un has a wife. And so I started looking into her and we don't have any information about her as well, because nobody knows exactly when they were married. I think they have three kids. Nobody knows the gender of the last kid. There's all of that kind of stuff too. But back to the question of women just being objectified and women in public spaces, public spaces and these realms of politics are all very male-dominated spaces, and women have to constantly negotiate them on male terms, and it's very difficult on a day-to-day basis, and it's pervasive, and everyone, like I remember when I was a school child, you know, from teenager onward, 
in England. We used to get catcalled by builders, used to get harassed on the bus. Boys used to come up and talk to us for no reason at all. My experience has been in Germany that this has happened less, but actually that's just my experience in the group Expat Ladies Berlin, which is a really great supportive group. There are constantly at least once or twice a week reports and complaints and just women talking about how they got harassed here, just sharing how traumatizing this experience is. This kind of thing, like women being objectified in our society, happens everywhere all the time. Yeah, I think a common misconception about catcalling is, is that people, I'm rereading this book, Everyday Sexism, which we mentioned in a previous episode, and one of the girls writes, tweets, if you think whistling at me for my nice ass is going to make me smooth, then by golly, mister, you sure know women. In no way trying to attack this woman. You know, the people who are catcalling, they don't want a reaction from you. It's all about policing women in public spaces. It's to, meant to, you know, show you they're in charge. They have the power. Yeah, I have to say that, like, the places where I was most aggressively ever catcalled has been New York City. And there was this video done by an organization called Hollaback. And they filmed a woman walking through Manhattan and chronicled all the experiences that she had, all the catcalls. This video has been criticized because many people pointed out that sort of the reverse friends, in the sense that I mean, like in the TV show Friends, only white people seem to be present in New York City, one of the most diverse cities on earth. And in this video, oddly, only men of color seem to be present. So they've been accused of racism because it shows that they intentionally edited out any white men. But still, the point of the video still is that, like, yeah, she, you know, she's wearing a crew neck shirt and jeans and she's incredibly harassed. And it reminded me of a story. My, my last apartment in New York, my roommate, we didn't have any milk on one morning and she was literally in her pajamas and a hoodie. And she went out to the bodega to get some milk quickly. And she came back and was like, I just got cat calls indicating to what she was wearing. And she was like, but it was one of the nice cat calls. And thinking about them, like, so messed up. The fact, not the fact that she was catcalled, that was obviously messed up, but the fact that she was so used to catcalling that she had sort of divided them in her brain into good and bad catcalling, right? Because this man had said something along the lines of, hey, beautiful, how you doing? And she was like, okay, that's not threatening. But still, he was still trying to make the point that he was asserting his dominance in a public space over her. And I just wanted to share some statistics also from Everyday Sexism. She gathers all the statistics around women and harassment. And she says that 43% of women in London age 18 to 34 experienced sexual harassment in public places last year. This is a study done by YouGov in 2012. 87% of women aged 18 to 64 have been harassed by a male stranger. More than half of American women aged 18 to 64 have experienced extreme harassment, including being grabbed, touched, rubbed, or followed. 83% of Egyptian women report experiencing sexual harassment in the streets. This is from Egyptian's Center for Women's Rights from 2008. 85% of women in Delhi feel unsafe in public spaces. This is from the International Center for Research on Women from 2013. And more than 80% of Canadian women have experienced male stranger harassment in public places. And this is sad truth is that any woman listening to this is well aware of this. This is just preaching to the choir 
We've all experienced this. It's nothing new. Yeah, I can really relate to that. I mean, I have definitely felt unsafe with people's eyes on me, their reactions to me and the anxiety and stress and just how it makes you feel. It makes you feel like you just want to shrink into yourself and disappear from that space. But also like your friend going to pick up milk in her pajamas, just the sheer interruption of you going about your everyday tasks is exhausting. Talking about time and place, you know, about this kind of harassment, I was rereading Alison Kinney's Hood, which is part of the Bloomberry Object Lesson series, where an author investigates the cultural history of any given object. And Hood is really excellent. Alison Kinney is a very good writer. Anything she writes, everyone should read. But she investigates the history of a hood and she talks about how in Venice in the 18th century, this black hooded costume, it was called a ba-uta, that had developed from a century-long battle between the Venetian commissioners of this play and the aristocracy following the 1707 financial crisis. So it's quite a long story, but basically everyone started as a kind of subversive act wearing these long black ba'atas. And by 1793, nobody could identify really the class of any given ba'uta wearer or the gender. The Gazeta Urbana Veneta at this time published an editorial by Signor, lover of beauty, who denounced the covering of women and said, you women, you who are the beautiful half of mankind, who bring delight to all men who see you, why do you deform yourselves this way? And a reader responded, and her name was Laura, or Laura, I guess in Italian. She was replying from the Thistle Cafe in Venice. And this is her letter, which was published in the Gazetta 10 days afterwards. Will you refuse to read this further if I tell you that I am a masker? You are reading the words of a woman. Without the aid of a mask, do you think I would be able to write? The gentlemen around me all think I'm a man. They leave me in peace to scratch out these lines without annoying me with their elaborate bows and handshakes and pretty little phrases whispered in my ear and all other artful things that men do when they talk to members of my sex. So what she's expressing there is she's just free to sit in a cafe, write, read, do whatever she wants in a male-dominated space without being harassed. And this is in Venice at that time. This is, again, just reflects the fact that men think that women are there for their pleasure and nothing else. And when a man tells you, hey, smile on the street, because he wants to see the picture of a happy, smiling woman, it's denying women their own agency and freedom to do whatever they, they want without being directed by a man that they should smile or they should look pretty or they should be grateful when they're giving a comment is just downright irritating and women should be able to do whatever they want in public spaces. So basically, this just shows that women have been treated terribly by men since forever. Yeah, I think it really reflects the psychology of how men view us as other and they devise all these ways of talking to women and picking up women and this is how you deal with the other sex as if we're not 100% human beings like them. And, you know, their ideas of what women should be, how they should be treated 
and how they should be wooed and courted and and talked to. Yeah, so I was actually incredibly fascinated by this concept of a pickup artist. So the modern day pickup artist practice dates back to at least 1970. There's a publication released by a man called Eric Weber called How to Pick Up Girls. It is also to be noted that to be described as a picker up of women predates even Weber. Rational emotive psychotherapist Albert Ellis wrote a book called The Art of Erotic Seduction, a how-to guide for men that encourages them to meet women through the pick-up. So Ellis claimed that he had been practicing seducing female strangers since he overcame his fear of approaching them through in vivo desensitization in the Bronx Botanical Gardens in the 1930s. And the pickup artist community, which is often abbreviated to PUA, originates with this man called Ross Jeffries. And in the late 1980s, Jeffries taught workshops and promoted a collection of neuro-linguistic programming, also called NLP. And the techniques he promoted are called speed seduction, also abbreviated to SS. And he published a book on this called How to Get the Women You Desire in Tibet. And so on and so forth, more books were sort of released. Many pickup artists, they sort of refer to it as a game, right? So you have to work on your game. You have to improve your game by understanding the psychology and, you know, how women work and all these things. And the thing that really, really struck me when I was reading all of this, one was the fact that they like to use military or sports terminology. So the target, the game, also like business terminology, like raising your own value or lowering her value you know, sexist stuff. What really, 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 really struck me about this, and I think you alluded to it earlier, is it sort of assumes that women aren't, not just aren't people, but don't have personalities, don't have interests, don't have, you know, it says like, oh, this is the one and only way to get any woman, to seduce any woman. And I feel like it also perpetuates a kind of rape culture, right? Because it, it sort of perpetuates this idea of if you talk to a woman long enough, if you're charming long enough, if you're smooth long enough, the no will turn into a yes. Oftentimes, I feel like a lot of men don't realize that sometimes women, like they eventually give in in quotation marks, because saying yes is easier and simpler than continuing to fight. It's the same reason why sometimes women will smile in uncomfortable situations, which can then, you know, be misinterpreted by the person you're talking to as a positive sign. The pickup artist community sort of perpetuates this idea of working on a no until it's a yes. And, you know, it's been linked to some terrible things. There was the 22-year-old UCSB student Elliot Rogers killed six people and injured 14 more on his campus. And the media sort of pointed to his involvement on the fringe and satirical website PUA Hate. And so on this side, Roger and others... They used this community to sort of regularly engage in outlandish and, you know, misogynistic discussions. There was also another incident where 48-year-old system analyst George Sudini killed three women and himself in 2009 in Collier Township. And the media sort of pointed to his influence and involvement in the pickup artist community as a motivation for murdering these women. The incel community ties into here a little bit, which we could do an entire episode on in itself. Incels are the involuntary celibates, and you should totally look them up if you've never heard about them. They're a group of men that believe that they are involuntarily celibate, and that if they sort of 
were better looking, women would be attracted to them. Like it's, you know, it's not their personalities. It's the way that they look that is sort of the thing that I do find kind of fascinating or interesting about the pickup artist community is that if the base idea behind it is to teach men to be more charming or charismatic, like if the base idea behind it is, okay, I'm very socially awkward or uncomfortable in social situations, so I'm going to take lessons on how to be better at communicating with others, how to be better at speaking to women. I think that base idea is not necessarily a bad one because, you know, we all need help communicating. We all need to work on our communication skills. Like all good ideas, it's sort of spun into something absolutely ridiculous. Not like all good ideas, but incels is a similar one because the woman who initially founded the incels was a closeted Canadian lesbian who founded this group as a support group for other people who were in the same situation as she was. Not that she, you know, she couldn't pick up any women, but that she was so unsure with herself and how to act in the world that she thought that it would be great if she had a group of support. And of course, now it's turned into what it is. And I was thinking as I was researching this, I was thinking about something that ContraPoints or Natalie Wynn had said about her video on Jordan Peterson. I don't want to go into Jordan Peterson because that's an entire thing on its own, but she makes an interesting point in her video about him where the reason that so many people gravitate towards him, and here she's talking specifically about his like book where he outlines like 12 steps you can do, is because a lot of people feel lost, they feel unsure, and here is a man who is giving them clear rules and indications on what to do and how to act. The actual advice he's giving might be problematic. But she points to the fact that a lot of the times, you know, in like the left-leaning liberal world, we don't really give people rules on how to act, is how she puts it. But what she means more specifically is, you know, we say... We talk about defunding the police. We talk about not harassing women and all of these things, which are obviously correct. But you run the risk of alienating a lot of people because I don't want to quite say that we should be coddling men or whatever because, you know, men have run the world for so many years. They don't need any coddling. And I don't think that, you know, when we're engaging in activism and trying to change the world, we should be taking men's feelings into consideration. We have to take into consideration that if you push and push and push, there'll be a push back. And so in for the fight for equality, we have to take men along. And so she points to the fact that, yeah, maybe a lot of young men are gravitating towards Jordan Peterson because he gives them a clear indication of what to do and how to act. And I feel like maybe it could be kind of similar with pickup artists. Men don't really know how to talk to women. They don't know how to be charming and smooth. So they gravitate towards this organization or this community that offers them a space where they could learn how to do this. Obviously, it spirals into something super dangerous and misogynistic, but maybe in the very base idea of helping people not be so socially awkward, there is something to it. I think you're absolutely right. Obviously, things like incel, which was just started by a woman but became a cesspit of misogyny, and all of these pickup artist groups, you know, it's all men who are frustrated and changing relationships with women to a game and the gamification of women is problematic and the pickup culture and subculture and community has been linked to rape culture and murder in many, many, many cases. 
However, Clarice Thorne wrote a book called Confessions of a Pickup Artist Chaser. And in her book, she has the section called The Taxonomy of Pickup Artists. And she boils it down to a few motivations of why guys get into the subculture. She says, yeah, some guys are so anxious, shy, and socially inept that they legitimately do not know how to approach women. Others are hedonists who just want to have fun. Others are misogynist predators who want to take advantage of women. And then some are very analytical and obsessively trying to understand like sex and gender and human interaction. And some are in it for like profit. And she talks in her book about the concept of strategic ambiguity. What she says is in any relationship, you kind of need some contrast, some challenge, unpredictability, novelty, all of this kind of stuff. Otherwise, you know, there's no simulation in a way. But there's a dark side of strategic ambiguity because a lot of these pickup artist preachers are using techniques that are just abusive. So for example, there are tactics called last minute resistance, which are designed to convince the woman to have sex after she indicated that she didn't want to. And this is all seriously screwed up, she says, because it's just manipulation. So like, the pickup artist might act all charming. And then if the woman tries to say that she doesn't want to have sex on the first date, he kind of guilt trips her and makes it obvious that he'll be very disappointed and maybe angry if she doesn't sleep with him. So that's really aggressive and rape culture-like. And then sometimes pickup artists try to understand her reasons for not wanting sex and try to find a way to help her with those reasons. So like maybe she's on her period and she's afraid he's going to freak out. And as Thorne says in her book, she says, well, if the guy is like, oh, we can put a towel down, I feel comfortable with that, whatever, then if he genuinely kind of understands her reason, there's a good communication behind it, it could be fine too. She has a sentence in a book that says, the truth is that everyone is different and that many individual men and women have more in common with each other than with stereotypes of their gender. If people saw cross-gender relationships as more mutual than oppositional, then people would expect sex to be more mutual than oppositional. And instead, most people expect aggression and trickery to be a part of sexuality. And that's adversarial. It's kind of not a really good basis for any relationship. But if you're working on yourself, like you said, to try to work with the other person with more understanding. And if it helps you overcome your social awkwardness, you know, a lot of these pickup artists are geeky or inept at social interactions or maybe are on the autistic or Asperger's scale. You know, it helps them. It gives them very simple rules and tactics to do this. But yeah, there's a very dangerous side as well. Yeah, I just genuinely think that a lot of times men, whether, you know, they're being pickup artists or whatever, or just walking down the street and interacting with women, don't really think about how they come across. And as a woman, you have no choice but to be hyper aware in public at all times and to sort of be aware of everyone in your, you know, around you. I have a not funny story to tell, but it was a friend's birthday and it was quite late and a male fellow student and I were going home together, not going home together, we're traveling to our respective homes together because we lived kind of close to one another. And I remember he insisted on walking me to my door, which I was actually kind of grateful about because it was 2 a.m. And as we were walking, he told me that he's not, he's a big guy. And he told me that very recently he started noticing that when he was walking home alone 
and he like turned a corner and there was a woman on the corner. He noticed her body language change when he would approach her, not approach her, but walk by her or walk behind her. And he'd never noticed that before. And so once he became aware of it, he put two and two together and he was like, oh my God. So he started crossing the street or take steps to sort of remove himself as a threat. And I was thinking about how, yeah, like when he said, I was like, how many times has that been something that has happened to me? I remember one time I was taking the S-Bahn into the city really early in the morning because I had a 5 a.m. train to catch. And the entire S-Bahn was completely empty. It was winter, so it was still dark. And this guy gets on the S-Bahn with me. And you know how an S-Bahn is always groups of four? He sits in the four right directly across from me. And I immediately was like on high alert. I'm all alone. It's dark. It's still technically night. And this man has just sat over there. And of course, that didn't occur to him. He didn't do anything. He just sat there minding his business until we got to the main station and I got off. And he probably just sat there because he was standing at that door and he got in and he sat down and thought no more of it. But as a woman, you don't have that luxury. And so from that personal anecdote leading into, here are our three things that you can do this week to be a better person. Thing number one, follow organizations and support through groups like Anti-Harassment in the UK and Berlin Feminist City on Facebook, which is just being launched in Berlin. Thing two, If you see someone who's being harassed, you can help by either directly approaching the person who's being harassed, by asking them if they are okay, if they need help, or if you can call the police for them, or by distracting the harasser, by asking them for directions or something similar. 3. You can also document by filming acts of harassment, just in case the person who is being harassed does want to file a police report or if criminal charges are brought. That's it from us this week. Have a good Sunday evening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsession with us. Tweet us and follow us on Instagram at the underscore misinformed or email us at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to our newsletter. Find the link via our Instagram or our show notes. We are an independent nonprofit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can give a one-off donation via SoundCloud or become a patron on patreon.com slash misinformed. Thanks for listening and until next week.